Hello, and welcome to our new episode of the Vagabond Actors Podcast. We talk about acting, the craft, the business, the mindset, and everything in between. I am Andrea Helene. I'm talking to you from Mallorca, Spain. And I am joined by my two favorite acting coaches, Gary Condis from London. Hello, Gary. Hello, Andrea. And nice to hear your voice Thank this week. Thank you. We're also joined by Brian Casp from Prague. Are you in Prague, Brian, this week? Hey, Andrea. How are you? I'm good. Was that mechanical <laughs> enough? I think that was pretty mechanical. I was like, <laughs> How are you? I am doing very well. I am human today. I was like, I don't think Brian hears me. Uh, are you there, Brian? Are you in Prague? Yes, for the next two weeks I'm in Prague, and then I'm off to uh, sunny Moscow. Oh, goodness. You have to tell us all about this. Yeah. We have a very special guest today. Today's episode is... We're going to be talking with Wayne Mitchell, who's an actor and voiceover artist working out of Los Angeles. He's done really tremendous work in the voice community in particular in the last couple of years. And we haven't really had an episode where we've been able to dig into voice acting. So we're really excited to get into it with him and to find out more and to educate our listeners and ourselves about what it takes to be a great voice actor. I know you have lots to share and it's going to be super educational and inspiring for our audience. So we're really happy to have you. Well, thank you for having me. I've been listening to you guys pretty much as soon as uh, I saw in Andrea's Twitter feed that this was going on. And I'm like, oh, she knows acting. This is this is <laughs> worth listening to. And it's been outstanding. I just it really keeps my head in the game and like, oh, yeah, I should be doing that. And why am I not doing that? And OK, I've been doing a little of that. So it's <laughs> it's a wonderful, wonderful tool, you know. So thank you for doing it, guys. I really appreciate it. Cool. Oh, that's great um, to hear. Can you, come, can you come back every week and say that to us? <laughs> yeah. I'll yeah. send you an audio copy of it. Okay. I was just going to say, let's have him do a little, little blurb for us. Yeah. Hey, no worries. <laughs> Before we get into that, as always, we talk with each other about what we've been up to in our creative lives this week. So let's check in. Guys, what have you been doing? Brian, what about you? What have you been up to this week? Well, I've had some self-tape auditions. I've helped a friend with some self-tapes. And this was one where we were actually in person, which is mm. quite strange, actually. I was a little bit freaked out, but it all worked out. I'm actually working on some scripts. I'm editing the English. And so now I'm actually working on that. So it's good. It's kind of nice is to feel like I have some jobs that I know are coming up, but I'm not shooting now. And so it feels like there's this period where I can kind of relax a little bit and not feel stressed that I don't have work, but at the same time, not have really stressful times of like needing to get stuff done. So that's what I've been enjoying. You know, what you've been sharing with us about the editing and the, and the writing work, are you finding that are you in a particular phase of what you're paying attention to or where your focus or interest is in the editing phase of this? Or are you just kind of head down or is there something in particular that you're playing with or finding yourself jazzed by? Well, what I'm working on is a full script that has been written in Czech and was translated into English. And what I'm trying to do with the editing is to streamline mm -hmm. everything because it's slightly overwritten. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to reduce the amount of description that's there. Mm -hmm. It's actually quite taxing because you have to read through it and say, how can I boil this down to something more of its essence? And also I'm not really a screenwriter. So I'm sure that there's mistakes that I'm making. I'm learning as I go, but there's mistakes that I'm making in terms of ways to fix 
fix things that could be probably better. So yeah, that's that's what I'm working on. Yeah. Gary, what about you? What have you been up to? Well, yeah. I mean, this week I've had the good fortune of starting a new job with a client coaching, an old client of mine who I've worked with for a long time now. And she's landed a main part in a new TV series, which is the UK version of Call My Agent. That happened mm. in France. Ooh. Yeah. Good so stuff. a lot of people know the format, but it's it's a joy to work with her on it. And the, the actress is Foller Evans Akingbola. And everything's out now, so we can talk about it, that the press is out. So I'm working with Foller on it, and we're prepping her role. And it's shooting now, actually. She's shot a little bit, and we're just working through all the episodes. And she's got a, a regular, substantial part. And it's a really interesting experience. You know, as you'd expect, the script is great. It's very tight. There's nothing spare. It's just, you know... It's a really, really good script, great circumstances, and there's humorous situations, as you'd expect if you know the original. Mm -hmm. And it's just a joy to to work and dig into the script and prep her. You know, it's just a great reminder that with such good writing, it's like you don't have to double up on a lot of it. And yet there's still the opportunity because it's such good writing and gives you so much, then your job is, or our job is, is to find the nuance in the performance. That's right. You know, whereas recently I've had some really heavy, intense work to prep. This is a more sort of nuanced moment to moment work, letting the, um, you know, the writing breathe and sort of less is more, but still not just standing back from it. They're still creating something and it's becoming very nuanced work. So Yeah. yeah, that's what I've been doing, working on the UK version. Version of Call My Agent. I love that. I was curious if this is the show where your actress, after you guys are working on all these wonderful lines, suddenly her scripts are getting a little smaller. And I was curious if this has uh, been taken care of now. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> I yeah. think that is a no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know what? <laughs> but having said that, we did talk about this on a previous podcast where yeah. uh, I had a client who did a reading of a big Netflix show for the first episode. And then she had a lot of rewrites and she got her dialogue reduced. So yeah. obviously she just thought it was awful. She thought she was awful. It, and it all happened after the read through and she was panicking and she was, you know, I had to become a bit of a babysitter rather than an acting coach. And I was talking her down off the ledge and all the rest of it. And then, but what happened is, is it started to build up again, but just in a different direction. So they took it away and then built it back up because they were still in flux with it and just mm-hmm. trying to see what the best way this character could go in relation to this actress. Now they had her in situ, you know? Oh, that's mm-hmm. great. I would take that as a compliment of your ability. Ah, well, I had nothing to do with the uh, writing, but, um, you know, I'll take that all day long. Thank you. Absolutely. Wayne, what have you been doing this week that you want to share with us? Uh, let's see. This week, I on Friday, I got my second vaccine shot. So, Congratulations. Excellent. Yes, I was happy about that. And once again, I found myself across the street from Little Dom's, down the street from Playhouse West, the famous go-to spot <laughs> after a lot of plays. <laughs> cracked me up. Such good times. It really was. It really was. That was one of the reasons, actually, I chose that location on the CVS website, because I was like, I know that neighborhood. Let's go back and <laughs> look around. It was just great. Um, but then before it. that, the week I had a full week of the Audio Publishers Association Conference, APAC, which is a very large uh, gathering of audiobook narrators that took place online this year since we couldn't do it in person. And so I have notes and I still have a few more seminars to watch online and just got me really psyched up about audiobook narrating and all the different facets of it. So it was really great. So the world of audiobook narration, I mean, I know I'm kind of jumping right into it. Yeah. So it's an audiobook conference. 
Mm-hmm. Is it like new technology or new ways of going about it or yeah. new producers that you're learning about? Because you said you're learning all the time. So mm-hmm. what is like, because it kind of feels like, well, I mean, you're reading an audiobook. That means you're reading an audiobook. So is it changing that much or is it? Well, it's just, it's changing so much. And there's also just, there's so many facets of it. I mean, there's so many genres and within those genres, there's very specific things that you have to learn. I think one of the Ask the Expert seminars was just about romance and sex scenes and how much behind the sex scene should you get? Like how much should you, you know, be leaning into it? What is acceptable? What's going over the line? But then there's one on accents, like where do you go to get to learn these accents and what are little tricks of the trade? And there's so many of them. And then it gets very technical about different equipment to use, different streaming services, the global marketplace, the fact that audiobooks are going all over the world. That that's one of the largest uh, rising markets that anybody at from home, if they have the right equipment and the right talent, can produce audiobooks in every language. There's, there's a market for it. Wow. And so you have an audiobook agent that specifically, no. No. or do you just bid? Do you, oh, so then you know audiobook producers or how do you <laughs> like get the work? Well, the trail, that, that's the question everyone asked at the beginning. And, and I myself asked that as well. I'm a huge podcaster. I love podcasts. I've been listening to them for years. I mean, there's just something about it. The fact that you guys are in Prague and in London and in Spain, and I'm here in LA and we're having basically this intimate conversation and you can get that anywhere. And I, and I just always loved it. It always spoke to me, that idea of just learning things. And one of the podcasts I listen to a lot is called Script Notes. Um, mm-hmm. It's John August and Craig Mazin. And a couple mm-hmm. of years back when John August was writing his first novel, he did a, a little side podcast called Launch. And he went through, he went and saw where the book was being printed. And then he went and he met the narrator that he chose to do the audio book. And they really got into the specifics of how you get into audiobooks and what is required. And I was like, why am I not doing that? I need to be doing this. There's a way. Let's find out. Called my agent and my manager. He had no idea. He's like, yeah, no, we don't see them. We don't, we don't see breakdowns. I found the narrator, James Patrick Cronin. He's relatively well-known in the narrator community. Reached out to his agent and they're like, uh, we don't know what you're talking about either. And I was like, all right. <laughs> and so I reached out to, to James and how do I get into this? Never heard back from him. And then I, you know, I basically Googled, how do I get into audiobooks? And then I found out there's a huge support base out there if you know where to look and basically just Googling how to get into it, you can find out. And one of the main things out there is a website called ACX, which is Audio Cre- Audiobook Creation Exchange. It's run by uh, Amazon and they like to describe it as being sort of a match.com for narrators and authors, like independent authors. And so you go to that website and you can build a profile. And before you can even build a profile, you need to have the ability to record. So there's Mm -hmm. a whole technical requirement that you have to kind of accept and adopt and learn about before you can get into it. And I've always been a little bit of a techie myself and and I really Mm -hmm. wanted to you know, get into this. So I just committed to it. And I bought a sound booth off of Craigslist, uh, you know, for around 200 bucks and kept working it, reworking it until it actually worked as a sound booth, bought some equipment, put it together and started doing work on uh, ACX uh, auditioning. You know, first you put out samples, you pick like mm-hmm. five of your favorite books, the kind of books that you would love to be doing. Obviously they're probably way better than you'll ever get hired, at least myself at first. Like I chose Fight Club. I chose uh, The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. I chose The Devil in the White City. Um, and then also Ready Player One, because I loved Ready Player One. 
And so I was putting those out as my samples. And then the very first audiobook I got was a royalty share deal where you take mm-hmm. it upon your shoulders to do this audiobook. And then you're going to split royalties with the author 50 50, which ends up being 40% of the pie when they buy it. And so you get 20%, the author gets 20%. And you kind of go from there. You know, you start building your library and your resume. Mm -hmm. I love it. But it advances from that. It advances from that. Like after you get going, you learn about the different podcasts. There's a a podcast called the Audiobook Speakeasy podcast that I started listening to. And uh, Rich Miller was interviewing all the players in in the market of audiobooks. And so I started learning about that. And they were talking about this APAC. You got to go to APAC. If you're serious about your job, go to APAC. It's in New York. It's only one day, but there's other things on the day before and the day after after and it's worth going. And in 2019, I went out to New York. It's only the second time I've ever been in New York. And uh, I, you know, did the whole thing, did a, a workshop the day before and met everyone. At that point, I'd only had 13 books under my belt. And I was selected for a thing called audiobook speed dating. <laughs> and that was a room full of producers, like 40 plus producers. And you would get a whole bunch of tables around this big room at the Javits Center, I think it's called in New York. And you would mm-hmm. go up and talk for about two and a half minutes. And then lit- someone would literally ring a cowbell. And then you got up and you moved <laughs> to the next table and, and I'm spinning my plates doing my little deal. This is me. You know, this is what I've worked on so far. I've done this. I've been an actor for this long, you know, the whole deal. And you meet all these people, you get all these cards. And uh, I think it was two weeks after I got home from APAC that I got hired by this one studio and I got called by another studio. And I've pretty much been working almost full time since. Wow. Fantastic. I want to go back just a little bit to the time before you got into this work. So Wayne's been an actor for a number of years, right? Starting in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And Wayne was my student, always an excellent student, may I say. Always with a happy disposition (laughs) and a willingness to learn, which we teachers know is not always the case. And we're very grateful for people who come willing to work and learn and play. (laughs) Right. taught me some of my best lessons, Andre. I still remember them. Ah. What were some of the things that you learned (laughs) that you'd take with you? You know, the biggest lesson I learned from her, and it was just wonderful guidance on her part. Andrea was so great about just giving you the little pushes when you needed it and also letting you find it on your own. We were working on a scene from a play standing by, and there was this one, if you know the storyline, it's a guy and a girl meet each other on a plane, and the dude starts falling in love with her, and turns out she has cancer, and it's she's terminal and they start building this romance on what could be seen as, you know, the tail end of her life. And there was this one part where my character was saying, you know, let's get married and kind of just putting it out there as sort of this sweet idea of, you know, I, this is how I feel about you. Let's get married and do this thing. And then she immediately says no. And, you know, it kind of goes from there. And I remember for whatever reason, on my first taking of it, when I was working on it, then my character, when he offered it, it was sort of very much like he offered it saying it, knowing that it wasn't going to happen, but it was sort of a sweet gesture to try and put out across how he was feeling about her. And I forget what it was that Andrea had said that I was doing or pointed it out, but it occurred to me why are you doing that? Why are you going in there half-assing like, oh, let's get married, you know, waiting for her to go, ah, you know, you're not supposed to, we're we're not going to do that. Even though I know that was her line. But the thing I chose is like, no, let's get married. Like this is going to solve the problem. Let's get married. Let's commit to this. Let's have this life together. And you'll find out that our love will take us through this fuck cancer. We're going to solve this problem and this will take care of it. Like really raising the stakes 
knowing that she's going to say no. Like not my character didn't know it, but, uh, you know, the the whatever the guy behind the curtain knew, but mm-hmm. hitting her with that, forcing her to say, no, come off that hill. That's not going to happen. You need to stop putting these things out there because it's not making me feel any better. And it was just that choice to actually put it up that high to make her really have to reject the shit out of me mm-hmm. that <laughs> it was such a powerful lesson. And I mean, this was 15 years ago, I did this. And I was so psyched that when we finally did it, because not only were people crying, but I don't know if you remember this, Andrea, uh, an actress named Jennifer Reynolds got out, left the room and threw up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. That's acting. A, yeah, I was like, right on, we got you can it. make someone throw up with your acting. That's right. Acting. Well, I hope it was the acting. I hope it wasn't something else going on that had nothing to do with it. But in my mind, it was the acting. <laughs> It was the acting. It was heartbreaking. It really became a heartbreaking scene. It was so moving. And Wayne's energy, he just has a very positive, um, this fool's time really, like Earth Girl me. But like his vibration is always very positive. He walks into a room and he makes people happier. And so when he chose that vulnerability in that moment of really wanting something and not just sort of sliding by on charm, it just breaks your heart. Wayne has had this career as an actor, and he's also always been very proactive. You know, he made a digital feature that was really pre-HD, right? Mm -hmm. That a bunch of uh, the classmates did together, and Mm -hmm. they had so much fun putting that out there. And then he was working on television and film, and he co-wrote and directed a feature Mm film. Soledad. Soledad, which is available on Mm -hmm. Amazon Prime. Then you got into background voice work about 10, 12 Mm -hmm. years ago, and then moving forward to this podcast piece. But I wonder, what was that thing that you heard where you said, I need to get into this? Like, what was that initial draw really for you? Was it just that this is an opportunity where I can expand my range and play around with something? Or did something really hit you? Had you been spoken with about your vocal qualities before? Was it that you always loved doing character work? It was a little bit of all of that. It sounds so nerdy, but I was always the kid in school when the teacher asked, you know, to read out loud. My hand was up. I was ready. Mm -hmm. I've always had the ability to cold read. Uh, I've always enjoyed it. You know, I was a speech communications major and a cinema major at San Francisco State. I competed on the speech team for, what, one year in high school, two years at Santa Rosa Junior College, and then two years at uh, San Francisco (laughs) State. And I just always loved it. Initially, it was that idea with speech team where I was like, wait a minute, I get to go up there for 10 minutes and it's all me. You know, that really spoke to the ego I have and, and the ability like, yeah, I can put this on my shoulders. I can deliver this. And not to mention, I really loved Eric Bogosian mm-hmm. when I was young. Sex, drugs, rock and roll or uh, pounding uh, nails into the floor with my forehead. You know, he was the first actor, at least in my time, that came out there and he played all the parts and he did all the, you know, different characters one after another. And then John Leguizamo, was soon after and you know mambo mouth and he he also played women which uh bogosian really didn't play at least none that i can remember and so i always really respected that and when i saw speech team i was like oh this is my chance i can do some bogosian and i did on speech team i did a couple of bogosian pieces here and there so when this came along for audiobooks i had just recently been doing some loop group for uh patient zero or it was like this sci-fi channel kind of pseudo horror movie or show and they wanted this insane asylum scene where in the background they had some someone reading Voltaire 
And so they had it copied and, and they had it on the stand for us to read. And they're like, hey, Wayne, you want to give it a shot? Just go until, you know, you mess up and then start over again. And I just stepped up there and I read the entire thing, no breaks, full on emotion of just recognizing what it was for and just putting in this kind of crazy, insane quality to it. And they were like, wow, dude, have you read that before? I'm like, no, this, you know, this is new. And like, that was pretty good. And I'm just like, if only there was a job where I could just yeah. read all day long because I can read the shit out of copy. And Can you just say what Loop Group is? Because some oh, people sure. might not even know what that is. Loop Group, it's also known as Walla Walla. Nobody really uses those terms anymore because that implies <laughs> that you're not saying anything specific. But it's when you have all these background actors and they're all pretending to talk to each other. Once you start realizing that that's what they're doing, you'll realize, oh, is that why they're always nodding their head is because mm -hmm. they're pretending to talk to each other and they're not really. Um, but sometimes those background actors need voices so that they can sound like something's going on. Or maybe there's an announcement over the PA. The show I first started working on was Community. And I worked on the entire run of that show, just less than 50% of the episodes I worked on. And so we were doing, you know, radio announcements. We were doing students in the hall. Uh, we were doing anything that they asked. And it was a very funny, silly show. And there's usually about eight SAG actors that come in and the person in charge of the group will be like, all right, Wayne, you're the kid with the backpack. And Andrea, you're the girl that he's talking to. And you just kind of watch what those actors are doing. And if their actual mouth is moving, you kind of have to figure out what was it that they're saying and work backwards to mm -hmm. try and put in those words at the right point, which is very difficult to do, but you're also not alone. Everyone in, in the group is trying, it's like a game, like, oh, I think they're saying this, you know, and <laughs> it's really fun. It's real blast and it pays great. You know, you get SAG scale for doing it. You get residuals. Um, it's one of those amazing jobs, but you just kind of have to know the right person. And I will say I wouldn't have gotten it if it wasn't for Playhouse West because there was a yeah. former student that was the one that invited me to, to work for her husband on this college project and asked if I'd be interested. And I said, yes. And I went in and met him and worked with him. And, and he liked me enough that he called me in for another gig. And then the gig after that was Community. And that was about 2009. And only up until right before the pandemic, we were working together all the time whenever he had a job. Not all the time. That's the thing is, it's very hit or miss. Sometimes you'll get a show and then work for a while. Other times, months will go by before you hear something the day before. Mm -hmm. Can you be in tomorrow at 12? Yes, I'll be there. How fun. Oh, it's a great gig. I've done it a few times here. Definitely not scale, mm -hmm. not a SAG job here. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. So basically, it's part of the post-production in the sound department where mm -hmm. the sound supervisor will have gone through the final edit of the episode or the project, whatever it is that you're recording to, and they'll have decided we need extra either dialogue or just background noise. Like for us, it was a lot of the main actors were walking through a crowded marketplace and obviously when they were shooting it, they weren't going to be having any of the extras say anything mm -hmm. because they needed the sound from the main actors. Mm -hmm. But in the, in the mix, they wanted to have an option to layer on different voices, people mm -hmm. saying different things. And it's just kind of part of the background mm -hmm. sound mix. Yes. They turn it way down. They turn yeah. it way down or they can layer it. You know, they can mm -hmm. put some people close up and some people far away. And a lot of times it doesn't really matter what you're saying, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. so long as it sounds like it makes sense on some kind of subliminal levels. Nice. Yes. With a little yeah. improvisational quality. That's very cool. Yeah. A lot of improvisation. It can be quite silly. Yeah. <laughs> it can. It can. <laughs> And then I swear, maybe it was a month later that I heard the, the podcast and I was like, hey, there you go. 
And I just knew, I knew I could do it. I knew I liked doing voices. I liked doing accents. And I just had confidence that if there's people really listening and there's people that can judge, uh, I think I got a shot. So I gave it a shot and it's been, been very, very good to me so far. Mm-hmm. How often are you working with other voice actors in a project? And how often are you working in a solitary way? I would say 99.9% I'm on my own. Is that part of the appeal too, do you think, that you have a little bit more control over the frequency with which you can act and perform? Part of the appeal is the fact that I can do it from home. It's a double-edged sword. I do enjoy the idea that I don't have to wait for anyone else, that it's up to me, that I can take all this work on my shoulders. And as long as I can rely on myself and the technology and my knowledge, I'll be good. I can take care of it. But there are times, obviously, I enjoy working with other actors. There is a style of narration called duet narration where all the parts for women are played by another actress and you edit it within the audio. But as you can figure out, they're not really there when you do it. They send me the audio later and I edit it in to the project that we're doing. But no, I mean, I I love working with other actors, but for this particular one, that's not the way it works. So I'll just kind of take it where I can get it. Sort of like versus bartending, what would I rather do? And I'd rather (laughs) record audiobooks than bartending. Yeah, well, I think you're rather sane in that decision there. (laughs) Thank you. I've bartended plenty. Yeah, yeah, haven't we all? Yeah. Yeah. So, Wayne, would you talk us through the process sort of from casting to performance to working with your production team? Let's say an audiobook has been determined there's going to be made of Joe's nonfiction novel. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about how the casting happens. What's the qualities that tend to be described when you're looking for audiobook casting? Is there a casting brief that goes out? Do they usually determine male or female, or do they want to see the qualities of the different types of voices off the topic? How does it compare, contrast to what we know as acting breakdowns or acting briefs? Yeah, it's very different in terms of what they describe. Like I'm at the point now with a number of different studios that they know my work, they know what I can do. And they'll send me something saying, hey, you know, would you be interested in this? This is the kind of book it is. This is the author. They'll give me a sample of the book just to see if I'm interested so I can do my own due diligence and see if I want to do this, you know. Mm -hmm. But usually it's pretty straightforward. This is the book. This is a sample of it. This is the author. Tell us if you're interested. We'd like to have it by this point if you can. And then after that, it's almost unnerving sometimes that they just say, here you go, take it and and go get it. And it's kind of like I'm left to my own devices to, you know, make the call and to decide who does what and how I play everybody. If I have questions, obviously, you know, I I go and I ask them, but usually the prep is where you're just actually reading the book before you record it, which sounds like no kidding. Why wouldn't you? But you'd be surprised that there are narrators out there that will do very little prep. They'll feel like, oh, I've done this type of book before. I'll just get into it. I myself don't do that. You know, I'm still relatively new. I've got maybe 75 audiobooks to my name right now. And I just, I want to know. It goes back to the, the Lou Gehrig did not die of cancer. It's, you know, yeah. do your script or research. And most things you learn about one character will be said by other characters. Mm-hmm. And you'll be surprised at what point they'll actually say it. You know, there's numerous times I'm starting a book and the story starts ground running with the character yeah. full swing, fully developed and going. And it's not until chapter four when they do a flashback and the ex-girlfriend talks about what he looks like, you know, his leather jacket or what he sounds like. And that's when you get the little clues that I write down like, oh, okay, so he does have a grumbly voice or he does yell a lot or, or, you know, whatever the differences is. And I have my own kind of 
theater troupe of voices inside my head <laughs> that, you know, I use and, and I'll be like, oh, okay, this would be a good voice for this one. And this would be a good voice for that one, because you don't ever want it to be too different from your voice, but you do want to mm-hmm. definitely make sure the listener's ear can tell a difference between your main narrator voice, your main character, and then all the other characters that are involved in the production if you want to call Mm -hmm. it that. So it's a production team that's getting you the opportunities? Well, the biggest thing is, and this is what they taught me in the beginning, is that it's not industry. This is publishing. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. it's easy to mix the two up just because, you know, we're actors and this is what we think about. But uh, no, it's very much the publishing industry. Agents don't get involved. You know, maybe some of the bigger ones, you know, when when they're getting Meryl Streep, obviously, on an audiobook, which she's done, you know, they're going through the agents. Or Lawrence Fishburne recently got nominated for an Audi for the autobiography of Malcolm X. And you get those actors. Those actors are going to have their agents. Right now, for the rates that I'm getting, the agent isn't doing any work, so you wouldn't really be giving him anything. And they kind of just think of it as as sort of a side job. You know, it's instead of bartending, I'm doing this. And fortunately, it's helping the acting skills. It always feels like I'm perpetually rehearsing and performing and getting to work that muscle out, which is awesome. But it's pretty much just between the two of us, between me and the producer. And so you're not getting a terribly large amount of direction. There's not a huge collaborative piece in terms of the qualities of the different characters. It's kind of put into your lap, huh? And you get to run away with it. That's very interesting. Like there's always a proofer that listens to it after you turn it in. Because usually what I do is I record all of it. I have this period of time that I'm going to record it. I turn in my files. Then they have a proofer that goes over it and they hit you up uh, a couple weeks later saying, you know, you said this word when it's supposed to be this word, you mispronounced this word. Usually they never say anything about characters. I think only one time did I ever have to dial back a character that I was doing. And at the Mm -hmm. time I knew it was kind of a big choice, but I was having fun. I was (laughs) entertaining myself by this character (laughs) I was playing. And uh, so you always have that safety net that if it's too much, they'll they'll pull it aside. But one of the biggest things that the, the change in the audiobook world is that over the last maybe five, 10 years, it's really become a performance piece. Whereas before audiobooks were kind of more of this very presentational mm-hmm. display that it is very like erudite. This is what it sounds like if I was the author. And if you remember in Man on the Moon, when Andy Kaufman reads uh, The Great Gatsby in front of the college mm-hmm. and he reads the entire book and it's very presentational, you know, first Great Gatsby, you know, you'd be surprised <laughs> how many of the audiobooks are like that. It's, you know, I'm mm-hmm. speaking right now like a normal person and this is what it, you know and it's like no you don't you're not it sounds horrible mm-hmm. and no one believes you that that you're not talking to the back of the theater even though the microphone is six inches from your face and mm-hmm. i went into it just very much as an actor this is how i would act my way through this the narration is very much exposition and very mm-hmm. much just it's that voice in your head it's that friend standing next to you that's just kind of like whispering the things that are going on because you're not able to see it necessarily or very mm-hmm. rod serling i think out of rod serling in the beginning of twilight zone where you know he's not very presentational with what he's saying it's very direct it's very matter of fact This is what's going Mm -hmm. on. And Mm -hmm. as a narrator, I think that's what you want because you're providing this baseline for the listener that this is what the normalcy is. But then when things get heated up and things are getting a little more moving and action is happening, you understand there's a little bit of urgency. But then we go back to a very normal, quiet place. This is where we are and we'll keep moving. 
And it allows for that. So I've always liked that. You'll see in interviews with narrators that have been doing it for 15 years or they have like 600 books under their belt that they're still kind of coming away from that because they had been told directly by directors, no, Mm -hmm. you're acting. This is narrating. You need to change it and do X, Y, Z. And but now they're moving away from that. And it's beginning very much a, a performance piece, which I'm all for. Has it changed much? Because I would imagine that most narrators now have their own home studios that they work out of. And probably previously, you would be in a studio with the producer there mm-hmm. or with the director there. Or was that not the case previously? No, no, that, that's very much the case. They're, they're almost always exclusively in studios. Dion Audio is a big one out here in LA. Penguin Random House has a recording studio out here. But then more and more, because with the advent of like Audible and digital mm-hmm. downloading, there mm-hmm. was this ginormous move of now almost anybody can write something digitally. No one has to print it on paper. Then we can release it on a computer. And so a lot more authors were out there getting their product out there. And as as a result, there's a lot more product for narrators to get involved and give a voice to it. And mm-hmm. so it just became more practical that you would start building your own booth at home. And also the technology, the technology mm-hmm. came along so that, you know, your whole system doesn't have to cost you four or $5,000, yeah. um, you know, between my sound booth, the extra equipment, the lights, my microphone, uh, my software. I don't think I have more than $1,000 altogether in, in my setup right now, not including mm-hmm. my iMac. And Mm -hmm. so it just became a lot easier and to the point of, well, why wouldn't you do it that way if you can? And a lot of the bigger studios will will still hire you knowing that you're going to be recording it from home. And these days, if they really want to pipe in, they can. You can Mm -hmm. have directors listening to you while you're doing it, giving you direction if if the budget allows for that. But so Mm -hmm. much of it is, is that the the budget isn't that big. I mean, we're talking thousands of dollars, which, you know, really isn't that big of a deal, you know, Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Yeah. Do the authors get involved in the selection of the narrative? narrator and a determination of the direction, or do you just have to pull it all out of the text? Pull it all out of the text. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and you'll get author feedback if I get hired through uh, ACX. I have an author I've worked with. We do a genre called lit RPG. And we've Mm -hmm. done so far 10 books together. Each book is around 20 hours uh, finished. He hired me directly and he's the one that does the proofing. And, you know, he'll tell me directly what he thinks. And if I have any questions, I can ask him. But for the most part, he just lets me do my thing. And if I have to get reined in on something, he has no problem telling me. I'd much rather you do it this way. But that's also very rare. Usually, when I'm being hired by a studio, they don't want me to talk to the author. They want to just have one voice that I'm talking to, one person to answer the questions. And after a while, once they've hired you, they trust you because it gets really expensive for them to say, okay, we like what you did here, but now can you go back and redo it and make these adjustments? Usually if they're looking for something specific, they'll let you know ahead of time, or they might have you audition. You know, I don't always audition, but if they do ask me to read and get approved by someone else, then I'm for that too. That's generally the time the author gets to say something is at the approval stage. That's like the John August story I was saying. It's like he got to hear five narrators to read a chapter from his book or like seven minutes of his book. And then he chose Mm -hmm. from there. And after that, it sounds bad to say, but he has to kind of take what he's given. But at that point, Mm -hmm. hopefully he has enough trust in that narrator and their record that he's okay with it. And ideally, Mm -hmm. the narrator's coming back with something that even the author didn't realize was there. 
it's a very, very fine art, I think, to find the balance in the content and to know what's important and to know what needs particular expression or the rhythms need to be changed up. I think it's a marvelous way to bring your understanding as an actor to the performance of an audiobook. You know, the way we experience it is different in some levels and in other ways it's completely the same as sitting in a theater. Mm -hmm. I want to be moved by these stories and I want to be swept away. Yeah. Ideally, you know, if you're listening to a good audiobook or listening to a good podcast, you've got home and you've been sitting in your garage for 10 minutes because you don't want to turn it off. That's right. That's me. Yeah, that's the goal. Make them sit in their garage and cry. That's how you know you've done a good job. <laughs> or throw that's up, what, I guess. Yeah, right. <laughs> that, oh, fingers crossed. Now I'm going to have to put that on my uh, dream board. Um, <laughs> that is one of the questions I have asked some of the other narrators, just because I've already done it. Is it acceptable to cry on the mic? Like, can mm. you be so moved that you're brought to mm-hmm. tears, that you're having these emotional responses? And mm-hmm. like I said, I've done it on a number of recordings and I've yet to have someone say, could you do it again? We, that didn't work for us. And dry your tears there, mm. chief. But uh, I really get behind it. And obviously, you know, you don't want to be sniffling in the mic. There's already a multitude of noises our mouths make that you don't really realize until you're recording into a microphone that's so close mm-hmm. to your mouth. But beyond that, are you allowed to go there? And so far, I figure if something's telling me maybe I shouldn't go there, I probably shouldn't listen to that voice and I should go there. There should be no holding back to adding to the reality of the imaginary circumstances that we're experiencing at this moment. Mm-hmm. I started listening to, you recommended to mm-hmm. us, one of the projects that you really enjoyed. Oh, Some Go Home? Yeah. Some Go Home. And I had all of these questions coming to me as I'm listening to it. So <laughs> your first introduced main character is a woman, Uh right? And immediately I'm thinking, what was the choice on the part of the producer to choose a male narrator? And how do you go about finding that piece? And then how do you build up the other characters around your central characters? Like, do you have a sense that you have to weight them differently? Or what is that dance between these different voices and personalities that you're working with? I think the key word that you're saying there is personality, is trying to Mm -hmm. understand the personality of the character. And once you understand that, you can give them a quality to their voice. Or if you truly understand the personality, that voice is just going to come out of you. Mm -hmm. And that particular character, I can't remember her name offhand. Cassie? Cassie, yes. Very reserved, kind of a little bit of a chip on her shoulder, but you know that she's coming from something. You know that she has a background and it's just giving over to those circumstances. Like the whole idea of playing women, you know, as men, it's an interesting thing to be asked as a man, especially these days, to give over Mm -hmm. to the circumstances. And what would you be like as a woman, Wayne, as a 40 something, six foot two tall male? Now you're a woman. What would you be like? (laughs) And just giving over to that and taking it seriously, not trying Mm -hmm. to play for laughs, obviously. Obviously, is mm-hmm. that part inside you? And it's like, well, guess what? I've been brought up among women my whole life. I have a mother. I understand a lot of what it is to be part of the human experience and also be a woman. And giving yourself permission to do these things, take all the awkwardness out of it, just give over to it and be that person. And after a while, it really doesn't become a difference between male or female as much as it is just the personality and, and who they are as people and what's being asked mm-hmm. of you. So yeah, there is there is one of the characters in there. I'm sure you've got to her already where she's like a very boisterous southern lady and almost yeah. you know and i i know i was leaning into that one a little bit but i've also seen those people like she mm-hmm. she is that kind of an asshole that's very much is going to get in your business <laughs> and be very pushy and so ideally there's no question of who i'm being when i'm being her there's no mm-hmm. question of who i'm being when i'm with the other characters as well 
And mm-hmm. that one in particular, that book, I really liked it. I loved doing it. It felt like a Steven Soderbergh type movie with mm-hmm. a variety of characters. Ideally, the script is going to tell you everything you need to know. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, I had a okay. I had a lovely sense of the characters uh, through your work. Good. You're able to <laughs> put it aside that it's this guy doing these women and give over yeah. to us. And I can imagine it must be a real challenge that most of us don't face to be playing the opposite gender. It really gets psychological. You start asking yourself, like, why is it that I sound the way I do now? Like, why is it my sense of what a man is, what I put out in the world every day when I'm just by myself? Mm -hmm. Like, when am I getting in my own way trying to be overly masculine? And why am I overly masculine if I am? You know, you really break down who it is you are and what you put out to the world. The idea that this language that we all speak, we didn't know it at first. We had to learn it. All behavior is learned. All language is learned. We learned how to say things a certain way for a certain reason. So why not question all that and readjust it, tinker it, and now be this character? So much of that can often, when I'm playing a different character, it's also just how they talk, the rhythms Mm -hmm. they talk. Are they really in speedy delivery as I am now? Like, are they quick Mm -hmm. to get their words out or are they going to take their time and pull back and just let the words come when they come? And just making those little choices can just make you sound different to the listener's ear. You know, that ideally is the goal. How long does it take you to record like a certain set amount of pages? I'm a kind of a fast record. This morning I, I started recording around, I think, 9.30 and I stopped at 11.30 and I have about an hour and a half of finished audio ready. So that's a fast record. A lot of people are kind of have more of a one to three or one to four ratio, meaning it takes them four hours to get one hour of finished audio. But the other thing I do, which a lot of other narrators don't do, is what I do then is I proof my files. And usually when you're working for a producer, you don't have to do that. You send them the files, they send you back the proof notes and it's all good. I found myself, I can be a little mistake heavy. Yesterday I recorded two hours and I think I must've had 30-ish mistakes after I went back and proofed it. And then I go back in after I'm done and I re-record them, but still I was relatively fast. I think I started yesterday at 10.30 and then I finished my day at about 4.45 before five. And that was me recording two hours, going back, listening to the two hours, making you know notes on the mistakes and then going back in the booth and re-recording it. Maybe just looping back on the process Mm -hmm. side of things and being an actor and having trained as an actor, and we're always very much into deconstructing the process on this podcast. Mm -hmm. And you've sort of mentioned certain elements that you get involved with when you're creating a character or doing the voices for a book, but what do you do? What's the first few steps you take once you receive a book or a manuscript from an author? Well, right now I have a calendar. And so I schedule in how much time I need to record a book. If they tell me it's about 15 to 16 finished hours, then that'll be at least two weeks. I'll give myself two weeks to do that. Ideally, I'll try and read the book before that date starts. Usually I'm always turning in my work early. I'm a worry wart, so I like to make sure I always have it in before the due date. But then, you know, you read the book, you make your notes, you kind of decide who goes where. And then when you start recording, that's one of the things where it does get a little technical. You know, I run my own session. I use a program called Studio One. It works really great. I've tried a couple others. Once I got turned on to this, I love it. There's a guru out there, Scott Barnes, I believe his name is. And he does a lot of videos on YouTube on how to work Studio One for narrating, little tricks of the trade, things you can do. And so I've got my system streamlined and I start recording. It's called punch and roll recording. When you make a mistake, you stop, you go put your little bar that starts the recording right before you made the mistake. You hit record again and it'll go back like three to five seconds 
play what you just recorded to get it in your ear, how you sounded, and then you cut right in and your new time and get going. That way that there's ideally no difference between the two takes and you just keep recording until you make a mistake again. And then you stop and you go back and you redo it. There is a button that Scott Barnes suggested that I use all the time. It's called the Oh Crap button. And what it does is it stops the recording, it deletes the recording, and it goes back to where you just started and starts again. So it's basically a redo button because sometimes Mm -hmm. you'll get those sentences where you just can't wrap it around your mouth or (laughs) there's a word that just isn't hitting you right. And there's often times where there's typos in the scripts and you may not have picked it up on your initial reading. So then you're going to have to figure out on the fly, okay, this is a typo. I have to change it here and there. And other times it's just, it takes several times to realize, oh, this is how the author meant it. Like these are the rhythms that he's meaning when he writes it this way. I'm the Mm -hmm. independent author I work with. Very often there'll be an entire paragraph that's one sentence. So you kind of have to figure out, you know, what is he saying on this thing? How is he Mm -hmm. trying to, to space it and why? And you just plug away. And I try and be very fast when I make a mistake to go back and start over again so that there's no real space between, you know, starting and stopping unless I have to stop and go, okay, what exactly is going on? Why do I keep tripping on this? Usually you're able to figure it out on the fly. Right. And do you have like performance checklists, sort of the questions Mm -hmm. you'd ask if you read a play? Do you have a sort of set bunch of questions or you're just very instinctively responding to what's there? Or do you generally have a couple of questions you're asking while you're reading it so that you know where to pitch it? Uh, You know, it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of instinct of just kind of having a knack for cold reading and picking up the rhythms of the author. But then again, when it comes to having a question, like, is there a question about the character? Usually those questions are the ones that the author intentionally put in there. So they give you a little mystery that you need to figure out, like, why is this person like this? And ideally, in the next couple chapters, they're going to answer that question. So there are those times where I'm, you know, writing down notes to myself when I'm reading it, going, all right, why are they doing this? It seems like this guy's doing this for this reason. Not sure why. And then when they finally get answered, you know, so that when you go back and you record it in the first chapter, you're coming in with the knowledge of why that person is doing it. And you have the faith that the audience will then figure out what it is that the question is when it's time for it to be answered. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty quick going. So there's a lot going on as you're doing it. There's a lot of movement going on. Oh, yeah. I'm spinning plates (laughs) like crazy. Yeah. You're not doing a table read like you would do around a play where you can take a week to just dissect it and analyze it. It's like you're jumping right in there by the sounds of it. Yeah. But, you know, the other thing that I don't have to do is I don't have to memorize. True. Yeah. Right. You know, memorization is its own bag of tricks. As you guys have talked about on I I listened to that episode about memorizing tricks Mm -hmm. to do that. I have a question for you. I am not a very good cold reader. Mm-hmm. I screw up reading, it could be Dr. Zeus, it doesn't really matter. It's, it could be the simplest children's thing and I just screw it up. Yeah. I think it's because I don't read ahead of where my mouth is. Yeah. So you said you're a good cold reader and you can read yeah. pretty quickly. And what do you attribute that to? So if people out there are like, oh, I'd like to do that, but I'm really crap at reading things. Do you have any tips for me? Yeah. First, stop saying that. Stop telling yourself you're a crap reader because you no, will make that no, true. No, but that's true though. It is. I get you. I get you. But still, it's it's one <laughs> of those it. things that you're building yeah. a wall right there right. that, that you it. then have to overcome. And I'm getting better. Well, good, good. There you go. I just finished reading Moby Dick to my kids out Holy loud, cow. the whole book. Yeah. Wow. But continue. So positive thinking. 
Yeah, positive what thinking. Else? Definitely in practice, you know, practice. And, and you, you know, you find a rhythm of how much can I just like glance ahead? Who is talking exactly when you start doing a character? And hopefully it's the person you think it is. But even today I did one where it was like three lines and then it turns out it was the guy talking and not the girl that I thought it was. It's like, oh, all right, start <laughs> over again, go back and, and do it again. I have a friend of mine, an actor friend of mine that was looking into audiobooks and he's had dyslexia his whole life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what are you going to say to that? Dyslexia is a real thing and it takes a lot of work to get through it. It's just, you got to attack it and you got to work your way through it. And like I said, most narrators I know takes them a little longer to get through a book. It'll take them two and a half, three hours to get a single hour of finished material. And it's not better or worse that way. It's your process and it's what makes you, you. And and the fact, at least for the most part, you would be by yourself just working on it takes away from it because it's a much different thing. I've never had to do an audio book in front of any kind of director, in front of anyone live. It's just me and myself. So there's a little less at stake at that moment. It's not a bunch of people watching me, waiting me to figure out how to say the word usurp. Because I said it usurp. And they're like, ah, shit, I shouldn't have said that. Now they think I'm uh-huh. an idiot. Da, 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 you know, it goes you- from there. It's just me by myself. No one knows how badly I can pronounce a word. <laughs> right. Uh, do you do other voiceover work as well? And do you have a voiceover agent to do normal corporate? No, I, I mean, I've got demos on my website, but yeah. I got the demos done about five, six months into the pandemic. And not surprisingly, <laughs> audio agents were inundated by yeah. actors yeah. wanting to pivot into a recording. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm still reaching out occasionally to people and and all the wins that I'm picking up in audiobooks, you know, I try and promote them. I was the voice of Hellboy for four books, which was a blast. Mm-hmm. Very much my type of wheelhouse of things I like. And so, you know, I've reached out to a number of VO agents saying, hey, you know, I was the voice of Hellboy and I did this and I did that. And no response back. And that, that's just sort of the game we're playing. I, get yeah, it. I don't hold it against sure. them. And I'm, I'm going to keep pushing and turning it in and see where it goes. So you are actively, I guess we don't go out on auditions anymore, but you're actually actively doing tapes and you're looking for on-camera work as well. I do have a manager and yeah. I occasionally get auditions through him and I'm here for the long run and it'll you know adjust and you never know if I get the right part that might open up the other right part. Who knows? Okay. I recently did turn down my first audition just because it was another one of these racist characters and the project itself. I was just like, I just would not want to do that. I I wouldn't Mm. want to be there that day. That does not sound like a fun day. So nah, I'm good. I don't need this. Yeah. We just had an episode about that, didn't we? Exactly. Right? Yeah. By making determinations about projects that may not be in sync with what you want to do with your career or the kind of things you want to be connected yeah. with. Because it could be that you're like, you know what? Actually, I'm getting my artistic fill from doing mm. this. Although alone in a booth, like you said, it's not really as collaborative no, as no other acting might be. But No, I'm still, I'm still in the market. I'd still love to do some on-camera work. I've done a number of self-tapings, uh, you know, from home. I've got my little setup here. Yeah, I'm still plugging away. I still write. I've got a couple screenplays that I'm trying to push in my own little way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is for our listeners. So mm-hmm. what piece of advice would you give someone who would want to get into audiobook narration? Um, the biggest piece of advice I would say, a very famous audiobook narrator named Sean Pratt has a video on YouTube saying, if you want to get into audiobooks, do this first. And basically what he's saying is get in a closet that's not too hot, 
get out a book you want to read and pretend that you're recording it for at least four to five hours a day, do it several days in a row. And then after that, ask yourself, is this what I want to do? Like, do I really enjoy this process? Mm -hmm. Because it is, it can be a grueling process. And I myself didn't do that because I knew, I knew that this was for me. I knew I could do it. So I went in full board and gave it everything I have. And and I was right. It's basically what I thought it would be. I love it. Mm But do that. Definitely find out if you have the temperament to do it because it can play havoc on your head. Bronson Pinchow, he does a lot of audiobooks and he loves it. It's some of the, you know, the work he gets, but he also recently put out a video where he said, Here I am in my audio booth. Every time I get in here, I know I'm gonna be here for at least four to five hours. And part of me hates it. Part of me cannot wait to get done with this so I can get the fuck out of this booth because there is a type of torture. It's a very Sisyphusian ordeal of pushing this rock up the hill. And, and it's hard. You can't depend on anyone but yourself. And that isn't necessarily attractive to everyone. I'm a member of a group called Narrators Alliance, which is put together just for SAG after narrators. We get together once a month by Zoom and we talk about the trials and tribulations of what it is to be a narrator, what it's like to try and live a full life outside the booth. And then whatever's going on there, turn it all off when you get inside the booth and work through whatever it is that day you've given yourself to do. And it can be hard. It can be really hard to get out of your head. And if you are yourself, the only person that's getting yourself to work, it's all up to you to get in there and do it, especially when it's at home. Very often, it's easy to push it aside. Like, man, you know, maybe I'm going to watch this and then I'll get in the booth and record it. And it's easy for people to put it away. I myself am very fixed. Like I like my schedule. I like knowing what I'm going to do at this time. So I keep a very tight schedule. But, you know, there's a lot of other narrators that that's not necessarily their process. Um, But to someone that's getting involved in it, after you've done that, after you found out that this is something that you want to do, you need to have a publishing quality space that you can record in. It's one of the hardest things to find. More so than getting the right microphone is getting the recording space. And once you have that and you get the right equipment and you're all set up and ready, make sure you have good samples. Record the right samples that are going to prove and and put out to the world what you want to do and make sure that those are very good quality because now that's going to be what all the rest of the world is going to key in on and grade you by. After that, I would say then go to ACX, learn what's going on there. Since the pandemic started, ACX's subscribership, if you want to call it that, the people, the patronage has quadrupled. There's something like 45 to 50,000 narrators that are going on this website, going after specific work that maybe there's like eight or nine books out there that, that you can get. But I check it every day. I don't always audition on there as much anymore. But when I'm starting to get little gaps in my schedule, I will go on there and audition for stuff and try and get it. And even with all the books that I've gotten, which is nothing compared to some of the other narrators that are out there that have hundreds and hundreds of books under their belt. I've been on there. I've done maybe a dozen auditions over the last couple months and I've gotten nothing. I've gotten maybe one or two. Hey, that was nice, but we went with someone else. So it's a flooded market out there. It's just you you can't have the confidence of knowing that if you do have the craft available to you and you're willing to do the work, people will listen. You will be heard. Whereas sometimes it feels like in the industry in Hollywood that that's not the case, that Mm -hmm. if you don't have the right gatekeeper helping you, doesn't matter how good you are, you're not going to get in. And maybe that's just my voice saying this to me as an excuse of why I haven't gotten farther. Yeah, Wayne, you got to start with telling yourself that it's yeah. not. You got to turn that frown upside <laughs> turn down. Turn that frown upside down, mister. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah <but laughs> who told you that, Brian? I don't know. A little Where'd bird. Where'd you hear that? 
some Pollyanna or something. Yeah. But uh, um, I would say try it because it really is rewarding and you never know until you try. I say get out there and try it. Cool. Great That's stuff. fantastic nice. advice. I love it. It's specific. It's doable. It's realistic. It's mm-hmm. so helpful. I'm so appreciative. I have got one more question for you, and it's not a trick question. Did you listen to our three-part text series episode? Oh, yeah. I sure did, yeah. Did you get anything out of that? Well, one of the beauties of that type of work, and also all the scene work I did at Playhouse West, is that you start to learn a lot of, I don't want to say tropes because that sounds almost insulting, but I mean it in a a good way. You understand a lot of the tropes and the ideas that authors are willing to take on, and also the Mm -hmm. clues that a lot of authors will put in their text that are there Mm -hmm. for you to find, the little investigation that an actor should be doing to truly understand not just the text, but also understand the opportunities that this author is giving you by putting those things in there. And and it's it's wonderful to know that there's actually somebody with their hand on the wheel that's really putting this work into this text that that's giving you something to work with. So that comes into play a lot with dramas that you know I've worked on or other stories that I've worked on. The other thing I was thinking about with the scenes is that there is that whole idea of since acting is reacting and and I was taught in a Meisner based program, how does that apply when you're doing audio books? Because you're by yourself, you're not reacting off of another person. You're basically reacting off a of text that ideally you read. But I think because I've spent a lot of time working on all different roles, different scenes from a very truthful place, from a place that mm-hmm. comes from really trying to understand what's going on, the human experience involved, that that's always there. Not always there, but it's, it's there and I'm familiar with being in that place. And that's ideally where I'm coming from in my narration as well. We love it. You know what? It seems like something that it would be applicable. You told that story about the scene that you worked on. Mm-hmm. And what it feels like is that the choice that you made or that Andrea helped you make, mm-hmm. which is to commit to the thing that you're saying. Mm-hmm. And if you're asking someone to share their life with you and to commit to you, and you're kind of half-assing it, knowing that the answer is going to be no, then that's not as meaningful as yeah. you really asking for it. Mm-hmm. And in a way, that kind of training seems like it would help when you are reading the audiobook, because without that kind of commitment to the story that you're telling, and especially if it's just you there, there's no one else to help carry the water. Mm-hmm. If you're not committed to it, the listener's not going to be committed to it either. Yeah, I think so. I had a question about, because we have quite a few listeners that are international. So I wanted to know if you had come across any differences or other audiobook readers from different countries. Maybe it's going to be the English speaking world. So people in England or Australia, maybe even other language speakers. You mentioned something about that, the kind of international market. Yeah. Well, what I know is that it's growing. It's growing huge. The audiobook market, it's not doubling, but it's it's a billion dollar marketplace. As podcast are growing in popularity as people are getting more used to listening to podcasts, listening to that type of media and more accepting of it. It's going everywhere because it is ultimately a very inexpensive media for the listener. You know, podcasts mm-hmm. for the most part are free. I get all my audiobooks through the library, so I don't pay any extra for that. If I have to wait a little bit, so be it. I know Andrea works with a lot of German actors and I got to imagine the marketplace for German audiobooks is huge. Oh man, there's a company, I can't think of their name right offhand, but it is a German 
audio production company that does quite a few audio books. And, and in every language and in every niche, there is a market. The rates may be a little lower than the American rates, but it's also a new market that is looking for the right people to step up. That sounds great. Is there something that we haven't touched on, Wayne, that you want to talk about? You know, the only thing I would say is voices. You know, there are people that shy away from doing voices. I'm not one of them. <laughs> I, I like doing voices. I am a big fan of like Hank Azaria and, uh, <laughs> you know, the other the other guys that like impressionists. I love a good impressionist. And if you think about what an impressionist does, it taps into a voice that you already have in your head, presenting it in a way that you didn't necessarily think about it before, but now you do. And you can make the argument, well, those kind of voices are being done for comic effect, that mm-hmm. you're trying to be funny in the moment. That's why you're using that voice. Whereas very often I will cast known actors in my book because I can do halfway decent impression of them. And whether the impression itself on face value is good or not, for me, it brings a fully formed and developed voice to the table that I'm able to work with and play with. And I don't really like to tell people who I'm doing when I'm doing it because I don't want to ruin it for anyone. Mm -hmm. But usually, like I said, I've got a number that are in my theater troupe in my head that I like to use. And I, (laughs) I would say don't shy away from that either. As long as you're treating that character as a real person, showing them respect and showing the audience respect by not doing some goofy ass voice. Oh, here's one. I mean, it, it's a, if I tried to do it, it'd be a horrible impression. But Jeff Goldblum, there was a book I recently <laughs> did that took place on Ellis Island. Yeah. You know, everyone knows Jeff Goldblum and, and, you know, in the way, in the way Jeff Goldblum can be almost kind of whispery when he's talking about something, but then he gets a little giddy about it. Then he gets like, you know, very happy about it. And it's like that kind of like changing of speed of delivery, even if that didn't really sound like Jeff Goldblum, the influence is there and, and, and giving yourself permission once again to have that variety in your delivery, because you know, there's people that are like that. Mm-hmm. As long as you're not doing it for comic effect, I say, go for it. If it brings more out of you, that's different than your other voices. I said, go for it. (laughs) I love that idea that you're right, that it gives you, it gives your imagination a more three-dimensional experience. You can reach into different corners of that that personality. That's right. You know, it's hard in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and being by yourself can be taxing after a while. It sounds corny, but it's almost the closest thing to just being a kid with you and your imagination and a blanket around your neck that you're using as a cape, Mm -hmm. because that's all you need. You and your imagination and just let's go play. Good stuff. Mm -hmm. And glad. Glasses, I would assume. Like good eyesight. <laughs> eyesight helps. <laughs> we are so grateful to have you to talk about all of this work. And really, I mean, I know it's not my place to be proud, but I'm proud of you. I'm proud of <laughs> this fantastic career that you... I'm proud to have you in my life. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm very lucky to have you as an influence in my acting. And I thank you for whatever got you into teaching. I appreciate it because I think you do great work. I'm very happy to hear that. Thank you. That means a lot. And uh, it's always lovely from a teaching standpoint to see people take off and develop their own talents and skills and passions. And, and obviously you've done that. And with your always generous spirit, you've shared so openly how others can learn from you and get involved in this. And we're really grateful for your willingness to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) So shall we catch up as always, we talk about the things that we've seen or experienced this past week that we may want to recommend to others. Yeah. Well, I've got a film this week and I've seen it before, but you know, as with the uh, pandemic over the last sort of close to 18 months, I've been revisiting stuff and seen things twice or even three times. And on the weekend, I um, revisited There Will Be Blood by Mm. Paul Thomas Anderson. 
starring Daniel Day-Lewis. Mm-hmm. And I remember it being, you know, fantastic when I first saw it. But Jesus, yeah. I mean, <laughs> uncompromising intensity and depth. Yeah. I mean, you know, it might not be everyone's cup of tea and it's a very male film, mm-hmm. but for a reason, because it is getting at that. But just the intensity and yeah. depth of it, you know, not just the performance, which I'll come on to in a set by Daniel Day-Lewis, who pulls it out of the bag most of the time, mm-hmm. but like <laughs> everything just really fits together. It's such a full film, mm-hmm. so full. And it all fits together well, the performances, the music. There's that eerie, atonal score by Radiohead's Johnny Greenwood, which is just, I I didn't really connect to first time round, but it's there as a presence all the way through. That's just like a subtext of this man's madness and the landscape and then the story. And it's just like, yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson pulling all that together Mm -hmm. is is amazing. Mm -hmm. And then you've got Daniel Day-Lewis's performance, who some people do think he's sometimes too much. And particularly at the end of this movie, there's a huge, crazy scene in his home where Paul Dano comes to visit him. And some people have described it as over the top. But I'm just like, well, you know what? I don't mind a bit of opera in my life. I don't mind a bit of largeness happening because everything's so dumbed down a lot of the time. And it's dealing with big operatic themes and it's dealing with big feelings and I came out and I was like I felt like I'd been dragged through a bush in a good way it was just like everything you want a film to do to really grab you by the guts Mm -hmm. and so if you want (laughs) that's not really a a great sell but (laughs) most of the time people want to have spend their Saturday nights eating popcorn and just you know having a nice time and make being laugh or falling in falling in love but you know if you want something a bit different and um, you just want to be absorbed in an experience while having a fundamental story that really gets a sort of tragic parable of the addiction to oil and the male drive that is embodied by Daniel Day-Lewis, then there will be blood. That's my tip for that. You guys could do an entire podcast about that movie. I mean, it's insane. If you really want to get into a character that all characters in a story should change, and if there's not a change, then what's the point? Can you make the argument that that guy not only didn't change, he just proved that he was who he was, and that's the way it was going to be? Right, right. And that was his downfall. Mm -hmm. Or was it? You know, for him, if he's living his life for himself and for his own rules, he kind of proved that when people treat him in a certain way, he's going to react a certain way. What he did to the guy that was pretending to be his brother is basically what he did to Paul Dano at the end. Like he proved that he doesn't like liars and he will take retribution if need be. Sure. But there's also a payoff for that, which is you're going to lead a life of lonely misery. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, you can live your truth and be unflexible but you will end up a drunkard, lonely old man. (laughs) With a cool bowling alley, though. Very cool bowling alley. (laughs) Brian, do you have a recommendation for this week? I do. I watched the second series of Love, Death, and Robots on Netflix, and it is maybe not everyone's cup of tea, but it certainly was mine. It's an animated anthology series of short films that are kind of about robots. It's science fiction-y, and they are each done in a different style and with a different kind of tone. And they're very adult themes. It's very comic booky in that way where they attack a certain subject. Mm-hmm. And so I, I really enjoy it. So I would recommend Love, Death, and Robots on Netflix. Nice. Yeah, I watched Love, Death, and Robots on Friday after I got my uh, second <laughs> shot. Uh-huh. I ended up watching all of them. I loved it. Recently, what I got into, I'm five episodes in 
zero 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 and holy shit is that an amazing show like the writing on that show the characters you talk about fully developed characters it's super impressive i had no idea where it's going i had no idea what i was getting into when i got into it so i just kind of i'd heard a recommendation to check it out and yeah i I really like that and i will throw out there that i watched all four seasons of the last kingdom because you guys recommended it and brian i agree that guy's the guy he is (laughs) the guy yeah, very much so. You take Brad Pitt and Channing Tatum, combine them together with the height of Tom Cruise, and that's the guy. <laughs> <laughs> cool. What about you, Andrea? What do you have to recommend? Well, one of my very favorite actors in the world is Jeff Bridges, and I highly recommend the 2009 film that he made called Crazy Heart. If you've not seen it yet, it's really a beautiful performance. It could have been in less capable hands, a little bit stereotypical story and performance, but he is just so graceful and he has so much ease and confidence and fluidity to his work. I just adore him and I love this performance. And he's surrounded by other solid performances from Maggie Gyllenhaal and Colin Farrell, actually, and Robert Duvall. Let me let me just bow down to Robert Duvall. <laughs> but I can't recommend it highly enough. It's not always an easy story to see, but it's so human and it's tender and it's heartbreaking. He plays a down-on-his-luck country singer. And the question is whether or not he can pull himself away from the alcohol that's been part of his demise and find his soul again. And he's beautiful in it. So I I highly recommend 2009's Crazy Heart with Jeff Bridges. Good ones. Yeah, all very good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so thank you very much, Wayne, for coming on and for talking to us about what you're doing with the audiobooks. Thanks for asking me. I was really touched to be asked. Thank you very much. That was great. Is there a way that people can follow you on social media or or get in touch with you if they're I don't know how many authors are out there that listen to us, but... Yeah, I have a website. It's allthingswaynemitchell.com. I've got a lot of little things on there. I've got my audiobooks listed, where you can find me on Audible. I also have the link to Soledad on, on Amazon Prime. I've got Yard Sale the Movie on there under <laughs> randoms, and that's that digital feature I made, and Andrea's in it, and she is fantastic. <laughs> I don't know, do you remember working with Glenn, Andrea? Of course. I still have that on one of my yeah. older reels because I love that seen so much we had such a good time oh good 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 because you guys killed it Um, so that's on there it's on youtube but i'm also on twitter at dr dynamite and that's uh m-y-t-e the end of dynamite there's two y's in dynamite and my instagram is dr underscore dynamite cool andre what about you how can people get in touch with you i'm on instagram at andrea helene three and on twitter at andrea underscore helene and i'm always happy to hear from people great and gary what about you yeah, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all at Gary Condes, or you can, yeah, get in contact with me via my website, which is garycondes.com. Excellent. And I am, as always, at Brian Casp on Instagram and on Twitter. And um, I think I still have a Facebook fan page, which is <laughs> languishing somewhere on Facebook. And if you want to get in touch with Vagabond actors, and we really do love when people write in with questions, you can get in touch with Vagabond Actors at Vagabond Actors on Twitter and Instagram and on Facebook. And yeah, until next time, we hope that everyone stays safe and stays creative 
And yeah, take care, everyone. Thanks, folks, for listening. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for having me, guys. Cheers, Wayne. Thanks a lot. Cheers.